The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Emily Bremner to today's episode. Emily heads up operations and scaling at Signal, a UK scale-up who've raised $52 million in funding from the likes of Redline Capital and Frontline Ventures. Now, Signal's solution uses machine learning to help their clients track the competitive landscape and monitor their reputation, and also to monitor key regulatory changes. This empowers companies to make smarter and faster business decisions. So, uh, Emily, it's fabulous to welcome you to the uh, Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you, Gary. It's lovely to be here. Signal as a company, and also you personally, have been very proactive in promoting ESG, so environmental, social, and governance standards. Is this driven by commercial or ethical and, um, and moral motives? Yeah, I think I think both personally and for Signal, it's, it's definitely both. My background was in international development. And, and while I worked with some extraordinary people and, and was a part of some amazing initiatives, I think for me, when you just have the ethical and the social push and you're not able to, to get to actually integrate what you're doing into a more commercial focus. There's just a limit on the size of the impact that you can have. And so I think ESG is really having an interesting moment where it's not about companies saying, we want to look good to our customers. It's not about companies doing you know, the, the kind of broader version of greenwashing, but it's companies really understanding that their economic performance is going to be shaped by how they address these issues and that consumers are more empowered, they're more aware, they're more informed. Um, and if, if they really want to be purpose-driven businesses, these are issues they have to care about. I think Unilever is actually, and I forget his name, but one of the former CEOs of Unilever was really at the forefront of this movement and really saying, we can be a business who's focused on doing the best for our shareholders and also doing right by our customers and our workers. And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I think Signal very much believes that that's a trend of, of the future in commerce. And so it, it definitely is a, a dual-motivated mandate for us. And ESG is a relatively new concept, whereas CSR, corporate and social responsibility, has been around for many, many years. So is ESG just a rebranding of CSR, or does ESG have deeper and broader impacts? They're definitely interrelated. I mean, I think corporate social responsibility used to be more focused on atoning for a corporation's sins than it was proactively advocating a new way to engage stakeholders across the business. And I think ESG is saying, yes, we want to be investing in, in good areas. We want to be, I mean, corporate social responsibility is, is largely about corporate charity. So I'm Coca-Cola and I'm trying to sell Coca-Cola products in West Africa. I'm also going to invest in clean water in West Africa. And that's going to be both potentially good for my business because I need clean water to make Coca-Cola. I'm not actually sure whether Coca-Cola is bottled in West Africa, but it's also something to give back to the community. And I think that's you know absolutely a positive thing that we should continue to encourage companies to do. But it's very different from saying, I'm actually going to make strategic decisions about the ingredients that are in my products that align with 
the environmental values that I have. And I'm going to have a board that represents the values of my company and, and values like diversity and inclusion and the increasing conversation that we're having around a corporation's responsibility to be a responsible citizen. And so I think my hope and, and the hope of a lot of other people working on ESG is that it becomes much more integrated into a company's DNA. So CSR was always a bit of a siloed department within an organization. And increasingly, a CEO is held accountable for their company's ESG performance. And ESG, as I understand it, is also more about metrics, which dovetails nicely with the sort of solutions you're offering to to your clients, where they can actually measure the metrics, measure their performance under the ESG criteria. It is. So ESG currently is is very much driven from a metrics perspective on what companies self-report in relation to their financial metrics. Signal takes a bit, bit of a different lens on that. So the majority of Signal's data is publicly available data that links back to perception. So that's um, all main news data, broadcast data, regulatory data, what people are saying in, in social conversations. And what we're trying to do in ESG and say is say, yes, that's, that's great. You should absolutely be looking at publicly disclosed financial data, but you should also be looking at the perception of how your company is engaging in these issues and how your customers and workforce believe that you're actually reflecting these values. And so we're trying to take a bit of a different lens on ESG and broaden out how potential investment professionals and corporations looking at themselves and and their competitors can understand their place in, in different ESG issues. How have you, as a business, embraced ESG within your own organization? In terms of our values and who we are as an organization, probably a huge factor in in my joining in the first place, how we treat our employees and our employees being really the DNA of who we are as a company is is fundamental. And and, you're going to hear a very similar story from almost all technology companies. We are our talent. We are our teams. I think it's Signal. and, And the reason that I've been here for three years is that that's always really rung true to me. I think Signal is someplace that you can show up and be your whole self. I think it's somewhere where we do value diversity of opinion, diversity of background. And that's something that actually enables you to do well in the organization and something that translates into stronger performance, promotion, etc. I think on a more tactical level, I'm going to be honest, I think we, like a lot of organizations, are looking at what are we doing tangibly from a diversity and inclusion perspective. Are our teams and and specifically is our leadership team as diverse across a range of different pillars that you could define diversity as we would like? And the answer is no. Um, I think we agree that you know we can't simply equate, we can't simply say that's because the software as a service industry or the technology industry isn't as diverse as we would like. We have to take action on that. And so we're making a lot of efforts across our recruitment and across how we look at advisors, how we look at our board to say, how can we as an individual company really stand up to our values and really live those values? And I think that's an ongoing journey. That's not something that we kind of check a box. But for me, I'm very proud to be a part of a leadership team that does take those values seriously. And that isn't about kind of paying lip service or doing something to attract talent, but really wants to continue to improve the quality of our environment because we really do believe the diversity of thought of our teams leads to a stronger organization. So what exactly are you doing from a hiring perspective, whether it be at the kind of advisory, executive, non-executive level, or senior management, mid-management, to strengthen diversity 
and inclusivity um, and what have been the major challenges? Sure. So um, one, I think one major challenge is making sure that you're looking at the, the most diverse set of candidates. And so that's going to job boards, that's going to recruiters that have specific networks among diverse communities. I think another massive thing that, that ends up limiting pools is how you write job descriptions and how you appeal to the market. Um, so one of the things that we really look at is focusing on core competencies rather than experience. So we don't say things like you have to come from XYZ University. We don't say things like you have to have this many years with this specific experience because we recognize that there's a massive talent pool that may not have had access to the same opportunities and could be just as effective within our organization. But if we create this, this gatekeeping language around specific narrow definitions for experience and um, kind of prestige that we're never going to access them. So I think that's been really impactful. I think, you know, when, when we look at exec search and we, you know, we do work with exec search firms, creating um, requirements that X percentage of the pool of candidates that's put in front of us is from diverse backgrounds. Um, you know, I think that the core challenge is the perception that prioritizing diversity makes it harder to hire if you have a field that doesn't have a diverse talent pool. Personally, well, I mean, there obviously is some, some truth to that in technology. I think it's a bit of a cop-out. I think if you're really willing to prioritize ability and not use these kind of markers of prestige, I think then you, you really can find incredibly strong candidates, but it requires you to have a hiring process that gets much more at talent and much less at box ticking. So, so in almost all of our, our interviews, we do case studies. We, you know, we give someone an exercise, we ask them to take it away and come present, try not to make it too laborious. You know, we, we obviously want to be respectful of candidates' time, but we really want to get at, at, at people's abilities, not just kind of the, the references on a, on a CV. The, the case studies, do you bring them in very early in the hiring process or after a, a few stages and more traditional interviews? It's generally about at the midpoint. So we have a few initial conversations and then that's the, the kind of the most rigorous part of the process before kind of the final stages. And in terms of telling your recruitment partners that they need to provide a certain percentage of candidates from diverse backgrounds on the shortlist, how are they responding to that? And, and what happens if they, they put a strong shortlist together, say five candidates, and they're all white 40, 50-year-old males, what do you do? Do you push back at that point? We do. I mean, you know, I, I don't think they love it, but I think they do understand that it's an increasing trend, that this is a factor that's really important to organizations and that it's a it's a key factor to their ability to, to deliver a successful service to us as a recruitment firm. And I think, you know, recruiters are, are an often maligned profession and can say I've worked with some extraordinary people and some more challenging people. And I think recruiters that lean into understanding the importance and the value of those kind of requirements are only going to be increasingly successful. We're not unique in, in putting these kind of requirements on the firms that we work with. I think we're going to see more and more of it. So it's something that I would, I guess, encourage them to lean into, even though it maybe makes the searches a bit more laborious. I think, you know, we're very much beyond the point where it's acceptable to say, well, you know, we'll wait until we have more of a candidate pool. You know, we have to be the change that we want to happen. Now, Signal has scaled really rapidly in both revenues and headcount. How have you had to change as a team, as an organization to handle that exceptional growth? 
Yeah. I think that the, the biggest constant, this is a total platitude, but the biggest constant is change. We as a team, I think, have to always remember that tomorrow is going to be different than yesterday. And, and we have to all be kind of bought into that journey and see that change as, as a positive thing, even if sometimes it's painful or sometimes it's you know tough to get used to. I think probably one of the biggest changes that I've noticed um, in, in having an office in the US where UK headquartered business is really moving away from that face-to-face culture. So like many small startups, we had a very close culture. Many conversations were had face-to-face, were had informally. That's, I think, seen very much as an asset in the early days because you know you have this open communication. You don't need sort of bosses and hierarchy telling people when to communicate and what meetings to go to. And while we certainly haven't moved to a system of directed communication, we have realized that to have a, a truly global office and to have an office at this size, we have to be much more deliberative about how we share information. And I think if we hadn't gone through that growth, we would have struggled a lot more in, in the context of COVID and working from home. And I think it's been quite reaffirming that we had matured to the point where now it, it's been quite, I won't say easy, there's nothing easy about this COVID situation, but we've matured to the point where we can have really meaningful engagement in a, in a work from home situation. And, and we've kind of learned what information needs to be written down, what can be a quick chat, how to make sure that new people are quickly brought on board and that information isn't siloed. And I think that's, that's a big change point because it's not something that always feels like a positive to, to have to let go of some of that face-to-face. And we obviously try to keep it on a, on a social and an interpersonal level, but that's been a huge part of our growth. Getting back to you personally, Emily, who are the people either from the tech and VC community or from the world of policy and and so on, who are the people who've really inspired you, whose footsteps you'd love to follow in or who've got a vision that um, motivated you to be who you are? In terms of motivated me to be who I am, I'm not sure it would be anybody from the tech and VC community. I think people are doing some amazing work. But I, I tend to kind of harken back to some more oddballs. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call him an oddball, but I've always been, and, and this may not resonate as much in the UK, I'm not sure how well-known he is, but Neil deGrasse Tyson is um, an astrophysicist in the States. And he's just an incredibly articulate, funny guy. And, and you know, he says things like, if you're good at bullshitting people, it means you're not hanging out with the right people. So I think, you know, everybody who kind of brings that no-nonsense, how do we push ourselves to, to question things, how do we constantly keep learning and how do we do it in a humble, kind, decent way would be pe- the people I look to. So, you know, again, it's left field, but, it, you know, people like a Dave Chappelle, I, I think almost everything out of his mouth is completely wise and and, and inspiring <laughs> from, from a perspective. I mean, inspiring is maybe taking it a bit of a stretch, but I think for me, people that speak truth are people that I'm inspired by and people that really have their finger on the pulse of, of, of society and, and of the world. And technologists, I think, can be a really amazing conduit to make some amazing things happen. But probably more of my inspiration comes from what we're doing on a kind of societal level. From comedians and astrophysicists. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That really opens up some intriguing questions about your your persona, but let's not go down, down that route. Within Signal, or even externally to signal, do you have a mentor, someone who helps you overcome the day-to-day or week-to-week challenges, even though you're not reporting directly into that individual? Yeah, so I've had many different mentors. I I generally end up kind of forming a relationship 
with someone specific to a moment in time. And I think typically then that relationship sort of ages past the mentorship phase and then just becomes a friendship. So in my early days at Signal, I was mentored by Luca Gria, who is our CTO. And that was actually incredibly helpful because obviously we were in different areas of the business. We overlapped, but somebody who had you know, enormous context on my world and obviously the organization, but had a different lens and had a technologist lens. And I think for me, his ability to, to think about how to motivate teams, how to engage with teams, how to think from a systems perspective. So not locally optimizing, but actually thinking about how, you know, if you make a change here, how is it going to affect a part of the business over there? And also his, his ability to help me build empathy with the technology side of an organization. So he's an engineer by background. And I think Signal has a really unique and powerful approach to, to engineering and to technology where we have very empowered teams. So, you know, we don't have designers in their corner doing design and engineers in their corner building features and product managers you know, doing strategy. It's really about a multifunctional team that understands customers and that works closely with customers to share, to solve their problems. And I think being able to, to really experience that approach to technology and, and learn that from him is really inspiring. These multifunctional teams, are these scrums or some other sort of organizational formulation? Yeah, I mean, we don't use the word scrum, and I think that's probably not a perfect approximation. To some degree, we're, we're post-agile, and that a lot of it's basic agile technique, common sense. I think actually, Luke, at one point, or, or one of his friends, I mean, maybe this isn't, he can't take credit for this, coined the phrase common sense engineering. It's, I think there are elements that you will hear in the Spotify model or in other models that have been exposed, but it really just comes down to the idea that if you have a small, empowered team who's working really closely with customers to understand their problems and you work in short iterations where you experiment frequently, you try something very small, you get feedback, you pivot one way or you pivot another way, that that's the most effective way to develop software. And frankly, I think it's the most effective way to solve most problems. So it's not something kind of specific to engineering. And are there any um, books or blogs or even podcasts with ideas, content that you've leaned on a lot when I moved into more of a, a managerial role, I read a lot of the kind of typical sort of management leadership books, which are filled with a lot of wisdom, sometimes a little bit of nonsense, but I think are well worth it just to kind of get the overall gist. I, I really liked the five dysfunctions of a team. I think that gives you a really solid grounding and understanding team dynamics and especially leadership dynamics. There are quite a few, which this was about two years ago, so now the names are escaping me. There's some, I mean, I still think, you know, it's a it's tried and true. I still think the Lean Startup is a must read for anybody in the space. I do listen to the Reed Hoffman Scale Up podcast, although I have to say tonally, it's a bit of a battle for me. I think the content's good. I think it's a bit probably one dimensional in its model sometimes. So I think like all these resources, you take the wisdom and you allow it to challenge your thinking and, you know, you, you leave the rest. So Emily, it's been wonderful exploring what you and the team at Signal are up to. Really excited about what you're doing in the world of ESG and the way you've been inspired by comedians and astrophysicists. That's, uh, that's refreshing for someone from the tech sector. So wish you and uh, the team at Signal huge success as you carry on scaling over the coming months and years. Great. Thank you so much, Gary. 
This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.